Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom and I are here by ourselves today. Tom, we don't usually, we've had a run of... We have had a run a of people of visiting the studio. Lots of folks have been in here. Didn't we do like a, we did a burn down one or something with just me and you back we in did. the spring sometime. That's the right. last one I remember. But we've been on a good run of having, I, I think, some pretty good folks in here. Well, we have a continuing list of it, of people to get in here. The problem has been scheduling conflicts. Yeah, you know, June, moving now into July, I'm hopefully going to start slowing down a little bit, and this is your... You're on the home stretch, yeah, and my stuff's up. starting to pick way up. Last week was rough. Tom mentioned to me this morning that it was getting into fungicide season for soybeans, so we wanted to sit down and capture some information related to that. But, Tom, before we start, what was the first job that you had? Oh, boy. I worked at Pizza Hut. That was the first actual job quote-unquote job that I had and that must have been gosh probably about the time I'd gone to college and come home I think so it was that late only because we moved around so much that by the time we moved between my sophomore and junior year I was doing other things during the summer and I had actually applied for a job and didn't take that job because it would have conflicted with extracurricular activities that preceded the school year. Were you on the Serving staff, or nope. were you building pizzas, or I were was, you hauling pizzas? I was kitchen staff the, that probably that first summer, and bus tables and clean dishes. Humbling experience. I mean, you start low, then you might get to dice some vegetables for the next day, and that probably is about it. And then through just pure happenstance, the two guys that used to make the dough in the morning, one of the summers I worked there just didn't show up. And so there I am at six o'clock in the morning looking around going, um, who's going to make the dough for the day? Because that's got to sit in the proofer. Tom's time to shine. And I'm not exactly sure that <laughs> I know how to do that. So I got to do that. And then I ended up doing that a lot because I think those two guys got fired. So yeah, Tom's first job, Pizza Hut. It seems like I remember the story about you making dough at Pizza Hut, but I didn't remember... The part about that being your first job. Yes, believe it or not. Start at the bottom, man. That's you, you need to start at the bottom. Everybody needs to that was a decent have place their to day work. at the bottom of the barrel. Then they moved me into the kitchen at one point, so you know, make pizzas. Then I actually had to I had to cut the pizzas. That's one of the worst jobs you could ever have at a pizza hut. Pizzas move through an oven pretty quick. Find that out. Cutting them's tough. The episode that we released yesterday, Tom with Drew and Trent, we talked about irrigation, and then it promptly rained in between the time that we recorded that episode and when we released it. It didn't rain everywhere. It didn't rain much here. Uh, no, rain, it rained good at my house. I think it was a pretty general rain, but it just certainly didn't rain everywhere. So there's a lot of water that's getting pumped. Some got turned off today, thankfully. But we're at that time of year, so our beans are a lot of bigger beans. A lot of blooming beans moving on through those growth stages. I'm sure you're starting to get some calls about fungicides and have been getting calls about fungicide on some of the earlier beans. What are the questions that you've been getting in the last week or so? Last set of questions I've been getting mostly are what fungicides should we put out? Lots of random questions about fungicides I've not even heard about at this point. 
there are some new generic products that are out there that that contain some pretty commonly used uh, active ingredients. And then, of course, lots of questions about, you know, what are your thoughts on still making an R3, R4 automatic fungicide application or prophylactic or whatever word you'd like to attribute to that? Several questions about that the last few weeks. Related to that, that R3, R4 application, prophylactic, like you said, whatever descriptor that you want to apply to it, are we 20 years on that? Is that... Maybe not quite 20 years. That's been a fairly common practice. I would say not quite 20 years. I think a lot of that work was done early 2000s with some of the more commonly used products at that time. Your, your standalone strobilurin or quinone outside inhibitors, the old headline and quadris were the ones that pretty much everybody was making research type trials at that point in time at R3 and, and, and R4. Did a lot of that come out of the work with soybean rust when, when rust occurred in the U.S. and we started doing more late-season fungicide stuff in an effort to manage the possibility of having, or not manage the possibility of having rust, but to have data on those applications in the event that rust occurred in those areas? Were we researching that and then saw something that was interesting and is that how that developed or am I completely off? No, you're, you're spot on. I'm just, I'm thinking about how I want to field that question. There was a lot of effort at that point in time that revolved around making fungicide applications that would protect yield in the event that when soybean rust arrived in this part of the world, the contiguous United States, that we would reduce the likelihood of dramatic yield losses. Most of the people that were working on soybean rust at that time were working on soybean rust in places like South America and in Africa. They were doing a tremendous amount of fungicide trials in both of those parts of the world on those two separate continents. And a lot of the individuals in plant pathology that were working on soybean rust at that time came up with ludicrous potential yield losses that would result from soybean rust predominantly in the delta parts of this country where we are now that were somewhere in the order of 50% yield loss associated with soybean rust. Now that would have been like 03, 04 and early 05. So that would have followed the initial observation of soybean rust in Louisiana, which would have been in like November 2004, if I'm not mistaken. So yes, a tremendous amount of that effort at that time revolved around fungicide applications to protect yield. And when soybean rust really didn't amount to much those first few years, those early years in soybean rust in this country, then they really focused on a lot of those prophylactic or automatic applications at R3, R4 as a potential yield benefit that didn't so much factor into rust control. And that's where we really moved into these automatic applications at specific growth stages. I was in Crowley in 2004. I worked for the LSU Ag Center. So I'd been down there in just a few months at that point. Pretty rainy summer. And I remember when they found rust and it was it was a skies falling kind of scenario because you just didn't know. You didn't know how bad it was actually going to end up being in the following years. No, and there, there have been some instances where it's been bad in some really small geographies in this country, but it's tended to be late planted soybeans, and they missed something when they were looking at, 
at those fields, and it ended up being soybean rust that resulted in some significant yield loss. But across big acres, that hasn't been the general trend. I confess I've never sprayed a fungicide on a soybean that I know of. But I've sprayed some fungicides on rice over the years. Most of that research that we would have been doing was evaluating sheath blight, you know, managing sheath blight on rice. And so we inoculate those plots. Sometimes that inoculum takes and sometimes it doesn't. We had occasions where we sprayed fungicides on rice plots. No sheath blight had developed. We put those treatments out anyway. And then every once in a while, you could get a little bit of difference in yield, but not because of the disease that you had the intent of managing with that treatment. So I guess if you can, comment on that and the phenomenon that might play into it. Jason, to answer your question, and I hope I won't chase this around a rabbit hole too much, it can be really difficult as a plant pathologist to evaluate plots either pre- or post-fungicide application. And when I say that, I'm leading into the answer to that. You end up looking at multiple diseases. For example, chemical company sends you a protocol to look at something like frog eye. And you make the fungicide applications and you spend all season evaluating those plots for the expression of frog eye and how those fungicides would manage that particular organism and resulting disease. And you never see any frog eye. So then you have to focus on some of the other diseases that are there. And rarely do you have an instance in a field or a plot situation from the research standpoint that we do things. Do you have just a single disease? So if you consider what you're talking about there in rice, you inoculate those plots with the sheep blight fungus, which is rhizoctonia, and you're making those fungicide applications in response to that particular organism and the resulting disease, something else likely occurred in those plots whereby you ended up with some benefit from making that fungicide application. And if you talk about that in soybean production systems, there's a laundry list of organisms that can be, and plant pathologists absolutely hate the use of the word control, managed with that particular fungicide application. Did I say that right? And I was describing active ingredient my... that was in there. You did, I think. I, I, don't, I don't remember. Because everything just, in my world is controlled. I know. It's like scratching your nails down a blackboard for a plant pathologist. Fungicides don't typically control anything. And at this point, they control even less because the resistance and some of the other things that are going on. To translate that over to weed science world, it's kind of like us rating pre-treatments. So those treatments that go out at planting, you go rate that two weeks later and the weed species that you want to rate, it might not, it just might not have been there. And so say you want to rate morning glories and you go look at that non-treated plot and there's just no morning glories there for whatever reason. Maybe it's a little early, cooler, soil temperature is lower. They said not started coming up yet, but you're covered up with palmer amaranth or you're covered up with barnyard grass, whatever. So you rate that. Even the number of plots that I've rated over the years, rating pre-treatments, you always kind of question yourself a little bit of, is this number I'm writing down accurate because is it really there? And that's when you got to just rely on on those non-treated plots that you have in the test to kind of guide you. So this would be a similar instance to that where I put a treatment out targeting managing this one pathogen, but it wasn't there. 
and as a side effect, I managed another pathogen that I wasn't even paying any attention to and wasn't smart enough to find if I'd have known it was there. Well, and you also can't break that down then based on a single disease, because if you have an instance where there are multiple diseases in that particular situation, so did you gain management and or control over just one thing, or did you control multiple things? And right. that's, a, that's the gray area of the whole plant disease slash plant pathology issue. So the disease didn't occur, obviously, because you just had an improper environment. And even in situations where you inoculate, was my inoculum good or did the environment not cooperate? And lots of times we blame the environment. So the environment didn't occur for disease to occur. If you talk about it then in the instance of timing and making that application at a specific growth stage, conventional wisdom suggests that the reason they focused on R3, R4 was they were doing R3, R4 and R5, R6 applications to consider how those may have benefited. And in soybean production systems, it's hot and dry now, and you hear a lot of people say, well, this isn't really conducive for disease. It's not. It's too hot, it's too dry, there's not moisture. Typically those fungi that cause those things aren't going to proliferate when it's hot and dry. But those applications were made at R3, R4 for what might happen after that period of hot and dry weather. And typically most diseases occur later in the season at that R5, R6 timing. But a lot of that focused on R3, R4 because there appeared to be a greater yield benefit at that particular set of growth stages than what there would be later in the season. The hard part is, is then you hear lots of people talk about, well, I don't have any insects out there and I'm not at a threshold so maybe I should hold off and then just piggyback a single application. So there was a lot of conversation about that too. R3, R4 isn't necessarily a great time for, for the entomologists. R5, R6 is their time. And that probably is a long-winded explanation and response. I want to go a little bit different direction here. So you mentioned hot and dry. What's the expectation for residual in my mind, residual. So length of... Length of residual right. efficacy post-application. Yeah, efficacy, activity, whatever word you want to apply. You get 21 days on your QOI, SDHI components, and you get 14 days on your triazole or DMI components, your demethylation inhibitor. So to put that into perspective, if you had a single... QOI product, such as headliner quadrus, you'd get 21 days of efficacy out of that if you made the full application of the labeled rate. Diminishing Six ounces. Diminishing over time, though, from day one to day 21. Correct. That's exactly right. One that's been posed to me several times in the past couple weeks since it turned hot, so week before last when it got hot and then got really hot last week, lay-by treatments in cotton, and then some post-treatments in beans that are, for all practical purposes, lay-by treatments. We don't really call them that in soybeans, but that's what they are. They're going to be the last post-emergence treatment. So a question has been, how long is this dual going to lay here without a rain, or it's hot, is it going to last as long as it would as a pre-treatment, you know, in our case, April, early May? And the answer is no. It won't last that long, or it won't last as long as it would have two months ago. And the product that 
is on the soil surface, once it does get a rain, if it has laid there five, six, seven days, it won't be as effective in the current heat that we have as it would have been in May or in any other time of milder conditions. So in our case, you think about the difference in the residual you see with dual on ryegrass in the fall. So it could last quite a while if it's incorporated appropriately versus what it looks like the first of June, relatively short residual compared with that. So the heat and the environment really factors into that. If I'm thinking about this R3, R4 application, in weather like we have had over the past two weeks, and thank goodness it's moderated today. It's really nice outside this morning. But the heat that we've had, how does that influence the efficacy and the length of residual? I don't know that anybody can answer that for how that might impact the product that's applied. Now, if you consider it from the standpoint of inoculum presence or the period whereby infection might occur, most of those organisms that would infect the soybean plant, regardless of what the disease is, don't typically like really hot, dry weather. Let, let's, let's focus on rust. Rust is probably the best one to talk about. Soybean rust and the organism that causes that don't like hot, dry weather. They like more mild conditions, lots of humidity, and pretty frequent rainfall. And I think that's the point that I wanted to make, we talk about among me and you and Don and Whitney and Angus and Jeff, whenever they've come through for the podcast, we talk about the similarities with entomology, plant pathology, and weed science. There are a lot of similarities, particularly the way we go and execute doing our research. But then there are some pretty dramatic differences in the way we go and look at those plots after they're sprayed. And I think with plant pathology more so than, than weed science and, and with entomology, that environmental component is huge. And I tease about the disease pyramid over the episodes that we've done with plant pathology, but it's absolute fact. I can spray something, it's either going to die or it's not, and I can go see it. You can't necessarily see everything, all the moving parts that are in play when you go and look at what a fungicide's doing. No, and, and that's, if you take the plot work we do, we tend to choose a variety that is likely going to get covered up with one particular disease versus another. And in most cases, it's really hard to pick a variety because the seed companies are getting things out. Right, why, their, would, why would that even be there? That's right. They don't want something that's excruciatingly susceptible to something like frog eye leaf spot because that's a potentially big yield reducer. So we have to choose something that's middle of the road. And the last few years, most of my plots have had a lot of zeros. So you're making a fungicide application at that point that is then just, what's it managing? That's the hardest part. So in lots of cases, to circle back to what we talked about, that R3, R4 application then has essentially been focused on as a yield benefit and not so much as a disease managing application. And in most cases, the work that we've done for the better part of the last five to six years suggests it may not be as advantageous now as what it was in the beginning or 10, 15 years ago, 
And I think a lot of that attributes to much better soybean genetics. And you almost could say, well, we haven't necessarily had really disease-conducive weather for the last three to five years at some of those important growth stages when we might be making one of those applications or even after that application. In the time since we started making these applications on commercial scale and it became really popular, I think back to what Trent said in that episode that we released yesterday, basically that in that time period, soybeans has become a major crop for this state. And so that would play into the genetics that you're talking about, more emphasis on breeding and just management in general. All things considered, soybeans have become a high input crop. Absolutely. And you now have breeding programs focused on some, and and not to say that they weren't focused on, but they're focused on some really important diseases. You have a little bit more emphasis now on something like Cercospora blight, which is a much bigger issue in Louisiana, but it's some of that has kind of crept across the river. And we do have a lot of soybean farmers that are now focused on managing Cercospora blight and see the need for management to attempt to reduce the yield loss potential associated with that particular disease. And heck, we've had, we've had Cercospora blight projects on this experiment station with a lot of counterparts from the Southern United States for like six or eight years at this point to look at fungicide inputs and variety management and some other things to attempt to really reduce the losses associated with that. Another thought that I had related to the environment, Tom, and I, I haven't looked at the forecast beyond early this week. I know there's a chance of rain a few days later in the week, 40, 50%. So it's probably going to be like it was yesterday. It might rain on you. It might not. But a question that I got last week, and I actually got a, a couple of them, when it was hot, this was a treatment that had gone out the week prior, so the week that it had turned hot. We were catching some rains decently regularly, and then it kind of turned off a couple of weeks ago most areas of the delta and turned hot so we're still spraying some stuff herbicide wise so i got a question about a treatment that was mixed with mso doesn't matter what the the herbicide was but it was mixed with mso they thought it might have been tank contamination i thought it looked more like surfactant burn and i attributed it to the environment it had turned hot had not been so terribly hot, high 80s in the 90s, but these 95 pluses that we've had the last couple of weeks, most afternoons, we hadn't had that. So you had a plant that was growing really fast, then it turned hot, and then we put a treatment on it, and it just responded. And it wasn't a high level of injury, but there was some injury there, and it looked like a physical burn that would have been associated with that MSO. So I've heard you talk about crop response to some of the fungicide treatments, so I'd be interested to hear your comments on either products causing injury or the combination of product and adjuvants causing injury. I would say anything that's a triazole or any particular fungicide product that contains a triazole or that demethylation inhibitor can produce some injury. And with that statement made, some products tend to produce a whole lot less injury than others. Let's take propiconazole as an example. Probably one of the oldest. So that's tilt. Right, tilt. Broadly labeled as tilt. And then propamax and a couple of other things. Um, There's a bunch of more generics that that factor into that. If you make an application with tilt, regardless of what adjuvant you put in there, 
So you put four ounces of propiconazole and a quarter percent of a surfactant, crop oil, non-ionic surfactant, one of those just general regular application type strategies, and you put it out over soybeans at R3, R4, you might see a little bit of injury. And if you know what you're looking at and you spend enough time looking at it, you can see the injury, but you're going to struggle to find it. Now, if you, if you contrast that to something like prothioconazole or tebuconazole, which I think are probably two of the most active triazoles in producing injury, and you put either of those out in a regular application mix at the full labeled rate, which a standalone prothioconazole would be proline. Almost nobody makes that application as just proline alone. It's typically in a premix type product. Or you put out tebuconazole as monsoon or one of the other, the old folicure is what it used to be. You put that out at four ounces. You put a quarter percent surfactant in either of those, and you are seriously going to see a tremendous amount of injury. Quarter percent surfactant as non-ionic surfactant? Quarter percent surfactant as non-ionic surfactant. Some people include crop oil concentrates as surfactants. You know, there's some terminology and the, delineations that need the to be The general made. line of thinking is that non-ionic surfactant may reduce the potential injury. It's a less injurious product is what you hear a lot of people say. We've done five years worth of work in my program looking at different adjuvants and different concentrations of adjuvants. And we did all that work with just straight three ounces of proline because we knew that that product would ding a soybean up. And I don't even remember what all the adjuvants were. But if you distill all that work down and you look at just straight injury, the best application strategy for those products that might produce a good amount of injury is to put an eighth of a percent of crop oil in there instead of non-ionic surfactant. That there is actually less observable injury with an eighth of a percent of crop oil than there is an eighth of a percent of non-ionic surfactant. And that is counterintuitive to what we think about with crop response with surfactants. But I can offer you the example when we were doing a lot of research with Sharpen post-emergence on rice. As that product was being developed for the rice market, Garrett Montgomery was here and did a lot of that work in his master's project. And he found, and it was very clear, that crop oil was a lot safer with Sharpen on rice than non-ionic surfactant. And it was one of those, probably one of the first times I had seen anything like that. Like, wow, that doesn't really make sense. But I know we've done this right because we did it three or four times and we got the same results every time. And non-ionic surfactant was not on the label for Sharpen post-emergence on rice. It was crop oil only. And, and, and then it got a little more complicated because we already knew with those burn-down applications that we used with Sharpen at the time, so this is 12, 14 years ago, we knew that it needed MSO and UAN to work well on like horse weed in a burn-down scenario. So it, it got a little, you had to add some layers to it and to do that post-emergence application over rice. Now, we don't use Sharpen to speak of post-emergence on rice anymore, so that's kind of gone by the wayside. But that is an example, too, of, of something that you're describing. Well, and the hardest part about that, that injury issue following a fungicide application is, one, there is a tremendous varietal component involved in that. 
and that is a really difficult thing to look at. And we've we've tried to do some of that too, just single plot strategy. Well, there's so many of them, man. You could never begin to. That that's right. There and are. then the combination of all the different adjuvants and all the different varieties. There's no way. And then you factor in different products. So some of the newer fungicide products will contain a triazole that we haven't typically used in the past. You still can get some injury with that. And you mentioned environment, and I don't want to not say something about environment. It's difficult to tie environment to that actual injury. We definitely think there's something associated with temperature. There probably is something more so associated with relative humidity. And we started doing applications one year, years ago, when when Tessie Wilkerson was my PhD student, and we started at like 9 o'clock with no dew and made – test after test after test of applications with some of the same products. And by the time we went from nine o'clock in the morning until 1130 in the morning, the amount of visible injury associated with the same product across the field decreased. Oh, I can believe that. So all I can associate that with is temperature increased and relative humidity decreased, well, which is the, a pretty common occurrence. And the dew dried up on the leaves. That's right. And, you know, it's just there's a lot of things going on. I mean, I know there's some herbicides that if you ask me, I would say cool and wet, you have the more potential to develop or, or for that crop to respond and be injured in cool and wet conditions versus hot and dry. But then there's others that I would say hot is much worse then cool, but then all things considered, you got to factor in growth stage and cool and wet. Our crops usually smaller, hot and dry. It's usually bigger, so it's just not A, B, C, D. And I think this is the same thing that you're describing. The two things I can say about it: one, in all the years that we've looked at that and we've tried to capture injury and how that may be associated with a potential yield reduction, we have not registered a yield reduction with a product, a fungicide product that's labeled for application of soybeans. And we've tried. We've tried to, to do that. So that's definitely a good thing. Now, the kicker there is, is about 21 days after you make an application with one of those products, those soybeans might start to look really bad. And usually what I tell people is just please stop looking at them for that. You're not going to hurt yield. The other thing I will point out, and you'd mentioned making applications of products Uh, with specific adjuvants in there, do not add a fungicide that may produce a phytotoxic or injurious reaction and some herbicide that may contain a adjuvant package because you're adding triazole from the product that will produce injury on the fungicide side that typically contains its own adjuvant with the triazole with some adjuvant technology in the herbicide system that will produce a ton of injury, especially in situations if you've got like dry land soybeans that are already stressed. Any of the field calls I've seen with that, they're, they look really bad observationally. All right, Tom, we're just going to have to stop because we have gone on and, and talked quite a while. This is a big topic and we'll definitely, as the fungicide season develops on through the through July and August, we'll come back to this and, and visit on some other topics. But I appreciate your your time. I appreciate you rating all those plots, man. I know it's hot, so I appreciate you getting out there in July and August and September. That's all right. When a lot of us are not and doing everything that you do, so I appreciate it. If we can help you all do anything, I know Tom's available. 
uh, just about 24-7, maybe not quite 24-7, maybe like 18-7. <laughs> but he's always willing to, to have a conversation about topics like this. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.